John Dunn is a renowned marine biologist who has spent decades in Aberdeen working on a number of research vessels. He was awarded an MBE in 2017. John has fond memories of growing up in Tamney Crescent in Mahara and has now written a memoir detailing his early days in the County Derry town. In this wide-ranging interview, we also cover the increasing risk posed by climate change, educating the next generation of scientists and exploring life on board the world's first research vessel to go to sea with a computer. I suppose I'll just start off, if you could just tell me maybe in your own words, how did you come to be in Mahara? Well, really it was my father's work who took us there. He was um, a, an inspector with the Ministry of Agriculture. None of us were native to Mahara at all. My father, in fact, came from Northern Ireland. Um, he came from County Down. My mother came from the Outer Hebrides, so <laughs> there was no connection there either. How did they, um, just out of curiosity, how did they meet? That's quite a, a gap from well, County Down to the Outer um, Hebrides. Actually, I, I know now, after extensive research, that they actually met in Scotland mm -hmm. while my father was still in the RAF and uh -huh. was based at uh, a seaplane base in Wigtonshire near to Stranraer and my mother by that time was working in charge of a creamery mm -hmm. uh, laboratory in, in Stranraer and they met at a dance and that was that basically. I see, so your father's work took you to Mahara, what age were you when you moved there? Well, I would just have been a baby, really. I, uh -huh. I was just starting to toddle. And really, my first memories of any description whatsoever are of Mahara. That, that's, um, as I say in the book, my first memories were of playing around the little crescent, or Stamney Crescent, and of the neighbours and the other kids round about. And in fact, the guy who is going to uh, deliver my speech and who is going to represent me, he actually lived in that present as well. He, he's my oldest friend in the world. We, there's only months separate us age-wise. Bizarrely, he has finished up in Scotland as well. Stuart Monteith. And in fact, his mum and dad, uh, he, he actually... His father worked for the UTA, and uh, they finished up down at the station, a place where we used to go and play. And the station, of course, went out of service, and so it was even better for us to play. We could play in all sorts of weird and wonderful places. Mm -hmm. uh, long before health and safety, long before people were worried about kids, we just got put outside, and you went off and you played, and that was it. Mm -hmm. And it was a very, it was, um, it was a very safe place little people to wander about and play and whatever else. Nobody ever thought to say, now, you know, don't do this, don't do that. I have to say, we were very, very respectful of adults and especially authority figures. We would no more have thought of talking back to a teacher or a shop owner or a policeman or any of these people than you would have thought of cutting off your own hand. It just wasn't done. You didn't do it. There were people who gave people cheek and so on, but we were all Ooh, affronted, you know, I mean, how, how dare you sort of thing, you know. So no, we, we were very, very respectful of our elders and people, authority figures, if you like. 
Yeah. Obviously, you came as a toddler, so you, you hadn't really anything to compare it to, but what was it like growing up in Mahara? Well, it must have had an effect on me. That's all I can say, because of all the things that I can remember, I have clearer memories of growing up in Mahara than I have, for example, of a lot of my teenage years. Now, that may be down to raging hormones, that may be down to discovering girls, that may be all sorts of things. But uh, Mahara obviously had a significant effect on me. Mm -hmm. I've worked and travelled all over the world and I've been to some beautiful, beautiful places. And, uh, you know, I, I worked with many different nations of people all over the world as well. But I don't think anything has made more of an impact on me than being grown up in Mahara. So that's why I thought I have to I have to investigate this. I have to put down all these memories and see if there is some reason. And I have to say that Stuart feels very much the same way. Mm-hmm. And he encouraged me to, to do this. And he discovered that my memory of events and places and people was somewhat better than his own. But between the two of us, he would often correct something that I had done, either a a spelling or or something where I had got it a bit jumbled. And you have to remember, it's quite some time. I mean, I I left Mahara, my family left Mahara because my father got moved to Ballyclare with his job when I was 11 and wasn't back again until I was an adult. Going back to write the the pieces about Mahara, does it made you any clearer of just how it's influenced you in your, in your life, well, in your career? It, it, uh, there were probably more characters per square inch of Mahara, although I, at the time, didn't realise they were characters. They were just people. The, the, the people there, whoever they happened to be, whether it was the blacksmith, whether it was the men standing at the corners who didn't have any work or whatever else, they always spoke to you. They always had time for you. They were always friendly. You went into a shop, you know, the shopkeepers were polite, civil, friendly, mm-hmm. and dealt with you in that way. It was, it, yes, it was a friendly place. Mm-hmm. Well, was that, that helps too whenever you're, even like, see so your father and your mother there moving from somewhere else there. It definitely would help them sell. My, my, my father and mother were certainly very much hail fellow well-met people. They dealt with everybody with a very even hand, a very open hand. Uh, everybody got um, you know, a welcome. Everybody was, was dealt with in a very open and honest way. And I know certainly that my father was very much appreciated in the farming community and of course at that time and still I would suspect to this day Mahara is very much about farming it's it's very much the centre of a farming community and knowing farmers as I do news of somebody who's an awkward cuss or somebody who's being awkward or somebody who's being a jobs worth or whatever else that news travels much faster than, uh, you know, somebody who's trying to help you and somebody who's telling you it as it is and dealing with you in an open and honest way. Mm-hmm. And that's what my father did. I never knew us ever driving into a yard 
in any farm uh, that we visited where they weren't glad to see him. And proof of that was he used to come home virtually every day from wherever he'd been with eggs or hens or beef or something, home baking, jam, vegetables, fruit, whatever. The farmer's wife oh, no, Mr. Dunn, here, here you go, I, I just made this, or here you go, have this, and whatever else, and so on. Mm. Proof that he was, he was uh, appreciated in yeah. the community. And, that, that was, that, and of course, the other thing was, although I didn't know it at the time, because I was just a little boy, and you are not conscious of how poor everybody really was, to be honest, blunt and honest. I never thought of us being poor, but when I look back on it now, I suspect we were sailing pretty close to the wind mm. most of the time. And one of, that was one of the reasons that my father, in fact, had most of the back garden turned into uh, growing uh, his own vegetables and fruit and everything else. And, you know, growing potatoes, and we had them in a clamp outside to keep us going the winter mm-hmm. um, sort of thing. Um, and kept us more or less self-sufficient in, in, in veg and fruit. But any surpluses that were, uh, my mother was a prolific jam maker and chutney maker. And even when we were out for walks, uh, we would be harvesting rose hips off the hedges and other things out of the hedges, blackberries. I've lost count the number of times that I wobbled off a, a, a stone wall or fell over a fence into nettles or whatever else trying to reach blackberries, <laughs> which my mother would make blackberry jam with and, and uh, rosehip syrup and rosehip chutney and all these sorts of things. Um, and there, there were other neighbours who, uh, the neighbour next door who was the, the baker's roundsman, he was a great fisherman and he used to go fishing. And again, I'd come home from school and, and find trout freshly caught in the sink. He, so he would share what he what he had with us and vice versa, we'd share with him. So that, that's the sort of thing that went on. And of course, the inevitable sales of work, because the church, of course, was uh, 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 something that was the locus and focus of a lot of entertainment, if you like, and so on, and, and what you did not just on a Sunday, but um, whether it was uh, Cubs or the Scouts or, or whatever else, uh, it was organised by the church in the church hall. And as I say, sales of work, being as there were a lot of farmers' wives involved, uh, they were they were the tables were groaning with home produce. And of course, my mum would have baked as well and done stuff. So she'd have gone with one set of jam and scones and whatever else and come back home with somebody else's. <laughs> Yes. I suppose that gives us kind of some of a clue, but um, as of obviously your career choice and the the journey you took on that, there obviously was a big nature grinding within your family. How and why did you get into marine science? Well, I have been fascinated by the sea for about as long as I can remember, and I can only assume that this was uh, down to uh, being very close to the sea and in the sea and whatever else at my mother's maternal home out in Uist mm-hmm. uh, and I, I, I just I just was fascinated I've always I've always had an interest in biology and at school uh, I have to say I wasn't 
a very good student. Uh, I wasn't a very good student at primary school, and I was probably worse at secondary school. But I did have an absolute passion for biology. And in fact, at Ballyclare High School, I got one of the highest marks that had ever been attained in a secondary school, uh, Northern Ireland school certificate exam in biology ever, and failed everything else. So that will give you some idea. Uh, and, and on the one hand, the headmaster was congratulating me on having brought credit to the school on this exceptionally high mark, but then took me aside and reminded me that there were other subjects which really mattered, things like mathematics and all these other good stuff. So when it came time to leave school and what I was going to do, I was actually probably lined up to go to Lochray Agricultural College mm -hmm. and become some sort of, I don't know, something. I'd, uh, I wasn't sure what I really wanted to do in that. However, a chance, uh, one of my uncles sent me an advert for a job at the Marine Laboratory in Aberdeen. So I had never been to Aberdeen in my life before. I'd been up and down the west coast of Scotland. I knew it like the back of my hand. So I set off on my own for interview at the Marine Laboratory, got there, did the interview. I was just about to leave when they called me back and I thought there was a problem. And they said, well, the candidate that was supposed to be interviewed, there are actually two jobs on offer. And the candidate who was supposed to be interviewed for the other job hasn't shown up. Would you like to interview for it? So I had two interviews on the same day and got offered both jobs. <laughs> so I had to go eeny, meeny, miny, moe, which one did I want? And I plumped for a job in the plankton section, which are the smallest things in the sea. And basically now, having spent just shy of 50 years being a, a planktologist, I'm not sure that I could have really done anything else. Because my, although it was a job, I never really ever regarded it as a job. And my youngest son, who has a degree in outdoor pursuits, always used to say to me, Dad, when are you going to get a real job? Because he regarded my job as a hobby. I suppose that's what everyone's looking for, really, is to find something they love and get paid to do it. Well, that's, that's why, because I, 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 mean, I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed my job, and people say to me now, do you miss my job? Do you miss your job? And the answer is no. I've been there, I've done it, and, and uh, I enjoyed it, and it was fantastic, and so on. And I'm secure in the knowledge that I trained my uh, successor, a young German lady, and she's doing an absolutely wonderful job. And she freely admits that if she had not sat at my elbow and had the benefit of me emptying everything that I've got in my head out, and of seeing how to deal with... Um, for example, research vessel crews and captains and others that you have to interact with and so on, she wouldn't be the scientist she is today. Because um, there's, no, there's, no man, there's no manual. Nobody can give you a, a book and say, here, if you read this and you, and you do this and you, and you get to chapter five, everything will be okay. It doesn't work like that. It's, it's called experience. You only acquire that by using it and doing it and getting it wrong and then not getting it wrong again. <laughs> That's why I became a STEM ambassador 
and that's why I have tried to satisfy the phenomenal demand there is. Young uh, pupils now, even in primary school, are way better informed about the environment and about sustainability and climate change and everything else, much more so than my generation ever was. Mm -hmm. So I've made it my business to make sure that young people of that ilk who think they want a career in marine science are actually given as broad a church and experience as they can possibly have because a lot of them will think that it's cuddling dolphins and you know measuring fish and all that sort of thing it's an exceptionally broad church you could be a marine biologist and never touch a fish you could be a marine biologist and never even get your fingers wet it, you know it, it, it there's every kind of ology and every kind of professional involved in it and in fact if most people actually realized just how important the sea is to everybody every single day way more money would be spent on it mm -hmm. why are we hell-bent on going to another planet and out there when we haven't even properly documented properly inner space there are still things there's still places on this planet we've never been we haven't a bloody clue what's down there but you know already we're hell-bent on polluting it. We're hell-bent on messing it up. And by Jove, we've done a bonny, bonny job so far of messing it up. Mm -hmm. So why go to another planet and mess it up? Let's concentrate on the mess we've made down here first. That's actually the last question I've come to now. It was obviously you touched on there on, on climate change and the importance of younger people understand it and obviously how much more climate literate they are. How grave is the situation? I mean, could you put it in words just how difficult it is at the minute? Well, uh, I it gives me no pleasure to say this. I have been almost boring everybody who will listen to me. Uh, I have done literally thousands of school, university, college, rotary, women's institute whatever talks all over the place i've explained in language that the layman can understand what we were discovering what we were doing why we were doing it and why it mattered in simple easy to understand terminology because i am very conscious of the fact that a lot of my colleagues adopted almost an aloof holier than thou attitude and talking about oh it's a 0 0.075 degree increase and it'll be this that and the other two blogs that doesn't compute them mm -hmm. what he wants to know is what 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 does this mean to me what's going to happen next week next month next year are my kids going to be really is our future going to be screwed up by this you know and if i'm a farmer am i going to be able to continue to grow the crops that i want to grow because the weather just i, I mean it used to rain in the winter time now you know i can't depend on that and the temperature sometimes i plant the stuff in the ground and we get a, a drought and it dies in the ground ever before we we get it to grow again and so on and so on so it's a 
it's an exceptionally complex uh, a, a situation, but in basic terms, we are hurtling towards tipping point. Mm-hmm. And when we reach tipping point, there is no going back. And when we reach tipping point, for us here in the United Kingdom, it will mean probably wetter and uh, more storms and fiercer storms than we've had. So the, the weather will become significantly more volatile. So you will get more localized flooding, you'll get more localized very, very strong winds, and you'll get more localized droughts, all of which will significantly disrupt our way of life. So the, uh, the, the other thing, of course, which everybody's now beginning to waken up to, pandemics, of course, are also caused by, and can be caused, and I think when this one is fully investigated, by climate change as well. Because if you upset the balance of nature by uh, man's activities and so on, then you unfortunately reap what you sow. Mm -hmm. And viruses and other things, pests and diseases and so on, are always, always the first things to capitalise on a disruption in the environment. You've only got to look, for example, battery hens when they first came, industrial farming when it first came, and whether it's fish farming or hens or pigs or whatever, if you do not have the husbandry and all that sort of good stuff absolutely bang on, then you will almost certainly be wiped out by a disease or a pest or a virus or something, which will march in, take advantage of the situation and boof. That's it. That's the stark reality of it. So it's heartening to see things like people being asked not to mow their lawns, for example, down to the quick, uh, and and local authorities to plant more flowers and um, you know ways of uh, stopping water, for example, roaring off hillsides and deluging communities and whatever else. And there are lots of simple things that can be done to slow its progress and to stop it and so on. Not developing in bogs, not developing in floodplains. Um, and alternative fuel sources. Now, everybody's heading off down the route of electric cars. Mm-hmm. Well, sorry. Uh, while that's all very laudable, it's not putting out fumes, but it's a short-term sticking plaster over a huge problem. Mm-hmm. So I would like to see more emphasis being put on fuel sources which are genuine crossover fuel sources. For example, hydrogen. You're, uh, you can produce hydrogen very quickly, very cheaply, and your car or your lorry or your bus or your tractor or your JCB can be modified very, very quickly to run on hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Here in Aberdeen, we've got hydrogen buses, hydrogen bin lorries, hydrogen vans, all the rest of it. And in fact, For those who love flying, and of course we have a love affair with flying, um, hydrogen aeroplanes are the bee's knees. Because if you think about it, an aeroplane sitting on the ground with its tanks loaded with hydrogen is the same weight as one loaded with avgas. If you take it up to 36,000 feet, the hydrogen weight-wise now is only a quarter of what it was when it was on the ground. Because mm-hmm. the higher you take hydrogen, the lighter it gets. So you can run with the same fuel load, but your plane has suddenly become three quarters lighter. 
to your own much more efficiently. I'd come across an article that you contributed to about the SS Explorer. And, yes. And kind of, I think there was a play they were bringing out or a book around it as well. Yeah, um, yes. Just it was one of the things that, that I wanted to ask you, what was it like being on board? It's an interesting crew. You said they were, a lot of them were taken from the prison um, because the wages weren't as big or as good on the on no, the let's boat. Put it, let, let's put it this route. Uh-huh. The government has never, ever paid properly, whether you're a scientist or whether you're an officer or whether you're a, a crew member. It, they've always paid the bottom dollar, not the top dollar. Mm-hmm. So back in the day when the Explorer was on the go, the Explorer, incidentally, was the last three-cylinder steam reciprocating vessel built in Aberdeen or Russell's. The, the Explorer was, um, I mean, she was old-fashioned really when she was launched, mm-hmm. uh, but I mean she was a very, very solid boat and the testament to that of course is that uh, she has survived the scrapyard twice uh, and in fact she lay semi-derelict up in the Cromarty first for quite a few years before being bought by the Preservation Society and now down in the dock in Leith. And really, uh, it's a question of the Preservation Society is trying to to save this vessel. Anybody who ever goes on board it, even though they've never been on board a vessel like that before and goes around it, is absolutely blown away by what they see on board it. And it's like a time capsule of everything that was engineering-wise in the marine world Duriger in the 1950s. You know, it, it's like it's like a living museum, if you like. So the uh, Citadel Arts uh, wanted to do a play about it, and I was interviewed about uh, by the, the playwright and uh, Art Citadel Arts director. And I, I went down, in fact, to Leith and, and watched a performance of it. And I have to say, it was a bit weird sitting in the audience watching a young actor playing a young me on the stage and listening to him saying things that I said when I was on board the ship. So that's a very weird, a very weird thing. And then there was a, a Q&A session after the play was over. So the audience were myself and uh, Jim Yorkston, the cook, and an engineer who'd actually all served on board the vessel, uh, went up onto the stage and answered questions from the audience who just watched the play. That was an even weirder situation. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like on board the actual ship itself whenever you were you were working on it? How, how was that experience? Well, you've got to remember that a, uh, in the 50s and 60s, the ships, the government ships were ships back then were somewhat primitive is the best word to describe it the cabins were serviceable but for example uh, there were two toilets between 15 of us uh, there were no ensuite facilities or any of that sort of thing and it was very much gentlemen and officers uh, we were as scientists we were regarded as gentlemen and officers and we lived with the officers in, in their accommodation. There was, I mean, there were designated scientific cabins because, of course, maritime law, uh, officers and, and so on of a certain rank have to have a particular amount of space and all this sort of thing. So, in some ways, that 
experience of growing up with a ship like that and trying to work on a ship like that and trying to carry out science, even though the ship was purpose-built. In fact, it was Scotland's first purpose-built research vessel. That taught me lots of things and gave me the experience to allow me to be involved in the design of subsequent research vessels, which my experience is now sought by others who are in the process of designing uh, fisheries research vessels because I deal in the practicalities. I, 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 I'm, I'm not a theoretical scientist, I'm a practical hands-on man. And if I can see a better way of doing the job or an easier and safer way of doing the job by doing this or design, redesigning that. So the current fisheries research vessel, which holds the, the uh, if you like, uh, banner for Scotland, Scotia, uh, is probably one of the finest research vessels in the world. Now, that's easy and glib to say that, but nobody copies your vessel unless you've got a good one. And I was fully involved in the design of the Scotia. It was four years out of my life involved in that. And that ship has now been copied by the Americans twice, the uh, Icelanders, the Taiwanese, the Australians, and many, many more, the Chileans, uh, and so on and so on. None of these countries copy your vessel unless you've got it right, mm -hmm. unless you've got a good vessel. If you compare, if you compare the Scotia with the Explorer, it's like comparing James O'Neill's ship with the latest uh, cruise liner. Mm -hmm. It's just there's no no comparison. The, the Scotia is operated by computer. The ship's steered by computer. There are around about seven hundred computers on board, dealing with all sorts of things from sewage to food to temperature, whatever. This, of course, means you can run with a smaller crew because uh, as long as the computer is kept uh, reasonably cool and doesn't become tired and emotional and break down, it just keeps going 24-7. Mm -hmm. A crew member needs to have rest, needs to have time off, needs to get fed, watered, etc., etc., etc. So there were no computers at all on board the Explorer. Oh, however, she was the very first ship in the world to go to sea, a fisheries research vessel, to go to sea with a computer. And the computer was operated by valves and ticker tape. It filled a whole room from floor to ceiling, wall to wall, and the heat in there was so great that the guys who were working in there were working in t-shirts and shorts, even in the dead of winter when the temperature outside was minus 18. They were in there because it was like a sauna. In fact, it was so hot that even the bulkhead outside the cabin got so warm, the crew used to come in off the deck and put their backs up against it to get a heat. And it, had, it probably had all the computing power of a hand calculator today, but it was one of the very first in the world. In fact, at the time it went to sea, there were only in Aberdeen three other computers. One was at the hospital, one was at university, and the other one was at an engineering company. So <laughs> it was, a, and as I say now, of course, uh, no scientist would go to sea without a computer, at least one. 
if not two, if not three. Uh, and most scientific operations require significantly more. So, um, you know, at any one given time on the Scotia, you can have up to a thousand computers all working on different things and doing different things and so on. But the interesting thing is that if the electricity fails or if the computers go fut or something does go down, then you need to be able to fall back to the basic principles and be able to do things without the computer. And that, for a lot of people, is a big ask. Because all their education, all, ever, as they've been brought up through school and university, it's all been digital, it's all been computers. So they don't know how to do things without the computer. And that, for me, was a big part of, of teaching new scientists what to do if you're on your own. Uh, I suppose just to, to bring us around to, to Mahara again to finish off, do you get over much? Not, not, not as much as I would like to, and that really, um, in, in many ways, was down to the job, mm-hmm. uh, because I had to go away to sea. So if I spent uh, 22 days away at sea, uh, and I might have an upper bit the length of a trip, I might have four, five, six of these a year, plus field trips and so on. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it was fair to my family to then suddenly disappear off to Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by the time you'd taken in family holidays to here, there, and wherever, um, it um, really was no time left. I did go back. I was invited back to... Um, talk to uh, an eco club at my old school at Ballet Clare mm-hmm. and I was also asked back to talk to the uh, senior pupils at Rainey about potential careers if you like and so on. Uh, I took both of those opportunities to, to try and, and, and literally rush to Mahara but it was a case of driving in, drive around, drive up to Tamney Crescent, have a look at it, take a few photographs, uh, walk up and down the main street and hope that you bump into somebody you might recognise or whatever else. And that was about it, basically. Mm-hmm. So my intention was, pre-pandemic, was to actually go to Mahara and deliberately go to see people and speak to people and all that sort of thing. But it didn't happen. Uh, and even... After the pandemic, I certainly would have been there at the opening of the the, um, the centre and at the, the book launch and so on. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm afraid events have somewhat overtaken me, so I, I can't do that either. However, the next best thing is that Stuart is representing me and uh, he's going to be there and, and he's a worthy representative and knows as much about me as I know about myself. <laughs> And he is, uh, he, he will give a good account of both of us. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to give us a share online or recommend us to a friend. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by searching for at Derry Post and at Derry Now.